0: If you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and take it out now and turn over to Psalm number 131. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, then we've provided Bibles at the center of each aisle. We'd love for you to not just use it today, but take it with you if you don't have a copy and, and read it and bring your questions to us. I especially want to welcome you if you're here this morning. Uh, As someone who's not yet a Christian, but are interested in who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him, uh, we're so grateful that you've come, uh, if that's you this morning. And we wanna make sure that we get to play whatever role you'd like us to as you continue to to work through those questions. Uh, We're gonna spend some time talking about what it means to follow Jesus, even in this sermon this morning, but then we'd love to meet up with you afterwards and to to connect with you further if that's something that that you're interested in. We're in a series this fall in the Psalms, not by any means, attacking all of them at once because there's too many of them for that, for, for a one fall series. But what we're trying to do is give you guys a sense of their variety and power of just what an incredible collection of, of, of poetry this book actually is. And one of the ways that we've tried to bring that to the surface is choosing psalms that aren't like one another, making sure that we're not just choosing the ones that everyone already knows about and loves, but that we choose some of those, but then also some other ones that you may not have realized were there. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a psalm that's only three verses long. A few weeks back, we looked at Psalm 78. It was like 70 verses long or 72 verses long. And the psalm is like that. It's just full of variety that is powerful. Um, and and, and not, just, not just that sort of structural variety, some being really long, some being really short, but also a variety of messages that hit us when we need it, where we need it. The Psalms is unlike any other book in the Bible or any other book I know of anywhere for its ability to penetrate our hearts and speak to real concerns that we're living with. And last week, we talked about the fact that if that's true of the Psalms, if they're able to, to hit human experience in its full range, then one of the things we would expect them to do is talk about anxiety and what to do with it. Because it's something that's common to all of us. As humans, we have big hopes, big dreams, big ideas for ourselves and what our lives will be. And we have limited power, and vulnerable bodies and we're subject to a host of circumstances we can't control that get in between us and what we long for and that condition means that we stress about whether or not we'll be able to accomplish the things we hope to or become the things that we want to be and into that stress into that gap between what we want and what we're able to provide for ourselves speaks a word of truth and hope and peace from God that came through to us in Psalm 127 last week and that comes through in a very different way this week in Psalm 131. Psalm 127 is, is a psalm known as a wisdom psalm. It's about what life is like in the world and how to draw truth from common experience that, 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 that everyone everywhere has had. This psalm this morning is known as a psalm of confidence. What it's called, Psalm of Confidence. I don't, it's not some sort of scientific definitions. This is just what a lot of different scholars want to call them, and so we do. The Psalm of Confidence is a hymn to God, but based on one's own personal experience of Him. It's a psalm that projects here's what I got from God, and here's where you can get it. So I think of the Psalms of Confidence and of this one in particular as a kind of commercial. Did you know they're already showing Christmas commercials? Already. Like November 1st, the day after Halloween. <laughs> those jingle bells are jing jingling there's snowfall and people wearing scarves even though it's 80 degrees outside in Nashville and we're getting bombarded by these commercials I don't know if there's actually more commercials during this time of year but I noticed them more and one of the most common commercials that you'll see is a testimonial it starts with a person who had a need it starts with that person telling you I got what I needed and it ends with that person saying if you need what I needed you can find it here and that's basically how this psalm breaks down this morning. It's a psalm where the, where the author is saying, here's what I have found my way to in my life. And it ends with him pointing us to where we can find it. I want you to think about this psalm as a profile of peace. If you want peace, here's what it looks like. Here's what I've experienced in my life, he tells us. And where you can find that peace. Peace. I want to begin by reading the Psalm this morning. If you would please stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read the three verses of Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are, are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to take three steps through this psalm this morning. They broke down uh, it was one step for each verse. It breaks down really simple this morning. First verse points us to humility as the first part of the profile of peace that this psalmist is putting in front of us. He found humility. And his humility led him to calm. That's step number two that comes out in verse two. And then in verse number three, he gives us the place to look for the calm and the humility that are necessary to have in a life where your soul isn't churning like a stormy sea, but is actually still. That stillness comes from hope. I'm gonna start with humility. That's just verse one. Psalm 131 says it's three different things about this person's heart. If you, want a, if you want peace, it's interesting here that the portrait of peace doesn't start with anything outside this person. It doesn't start with any of the things swirling in his life. We don't know anything about that. For all we know, he was having a rough go of it. His circumstances weren't anything like what he wanted. If the psalm, the psalm is identified as a psalm of David, what we know about David's life is that it wasn't peaceful. If what you're looking at are the, the circumstances around it, I mean, he had a lot of important responsibilities that were complicated, he was a, a fighter. He was a kingdom builder. He, he, he had s- significant challenges throughout his life. He never got to a point where challenge was before and peace was after. He lived constantly with those kinds of circumstances swirling around him. The portrait of peace doesn't have anything to do with whatever he was experiencing at the time. It starts with something that was going on inside of him. This isn't a commercial for a certain kind of living situation that you need to, you need to lock into if you wanna know peace or a certain career path that is your ticket to a still soul. Those don't exist. This peace begins within. And verse one describes this humility on three levels. Lots of Old Testament experts that I read also said the same thing about this. It's given us a three-sided or a three-pronged, whatever works for your mind, illustration of what humility looks like and it starts with how the psalmist views himself that's what he means when he says my heart is not lifted up that's a a Hebrew way of saying I don't think too highly of myself I'm not impressed with myself he doesn't think like a person who's overly confident he's not cocky he doesn't think his interests are more important than everyone else's he isn't in love with his own image he doesn't have expectations of changing the world single-handedly. He doesn't lift his heart up high. Similarly, he's not, he's not bowled over by his shortcomings because of that. A lot of times our own self, self-hatred despair about ourselves comes from having a heart that's lifted up. And then you see the realities, you see what you've actually become, what you've actually done. There's a big gap between how you think you should be and how you actually are. And that kind of despair, that kind of churning of soul comes from having a heart that's lifted up and he's, he's not there. He's not surprised or crushed that he isn't what he thought he should be. His heart is not lifted up. That's the first part. That's how he views himself. Then the next line shows us how he views other people. His eyes are not raised too high. In, our, in our, the parlance of our times, if you will, it's like he doesn't look down on people. That's how they would say it. His eyes are not lifted high. We, we say it. he doesn't look down on other people. He doesn't think of himself as better than others. So if the first one is about how he, he views himself in a vacuum, this one's how he views other people. What perch he sits on when he looks at others. He doesn't look down on them. He isn't harshly critical of them. He isn't easily disappointed by them. He isn't concerned that they recognize his greatness and bow to it. He doesn't have his eyes raised too high. And then in that third line, we see how he views God. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me too great and too marvelous, those words come together in other psalms, they refer to the works of God in other psalms. If you look at Psalm 86 or Psalm 136, is actually a great example of this, just a few psalms over, you'll see those same two words, but here we're, it's the psalmist praising God, and I think it's not a stretch to think that's what he has in mind here, when he writes these words. This is a man who doesn't pretend to know better than God does what's best for his life. <laughs> he knows he's not in control of everything, He's human, so of course he has things that he wants, that he wishes for, hopes for. He would not That's basic to being human, but, but he does not think that he is the one who knows best what he should experience in his life, what kind of things should come for him and how he should be able to rise to them. He's just not occupied by things that are too great. He knows his place. He knows his place. Stillness starts with humility and it leads to calm. That's verse two. Verse two begins with a but, a big contrast. So if verse one tells us all the things that aren't true of him, verse two tells us what is true of him. Instead of having a heart that's raised up or eyes that are lifted up too high or occupying himself with things too marvelous and great for him, instead of that, he has calmed and quieted his soul. Do you see the connection? When your heart's lifted up. When your eyes are raised too high, when you occupy yourself with terrain that belongs to God, Your soul will churn like a stormy sea. But he has not raised up his heart or his eyes and has not put his mind in the place of God and therefore he has quieted himself. Humility leads to calm. Rejecting pride helps you to embrace peace. And with this positive description here in verse two, with this, with this turn to the positive of what he has done to find stillness, the psalmist gives us the image at the heart of the psalm. The main takeaway that it builds to and flows from for what it looks like to have a still soul. One of the things we said at the very beginning of the series is that the psalms are beautiful to us and powerful in a way that, that other parts of the scripture, the different parts of the scripture complement one another very well And what the psalms bring that you won't get from, say, a letter to Paul is just chock full of images like this to help us connect with truth. And this image, the one at the, at the heart of this psalm, is the image of a weaned child with his mother. The psalmist says that his soul in him is just like a weaned child with his mother. What's the point of that image? What do we get from that? Well, a child that's not weaned yet knows exactly where to look for what that child loves most of all, milk. And when that child is hungry, it is not a pretty sight. I mean, those poor little things are just unfiltered stress balls that are absolutely consumed by whether they're going to get that next meal. Absolutely consumed. We we have uh, just sort of come through that phase with our youngest child and I noticed this more with him than with our other children that it was like every morning it was like he was starting fresh with his mother as if he had no relationship history with her whatsoever. He would wake up with the red face, you know the veins popping out, not maybe not the veins popping out that's what I look, that 's that's, that, that's what I thought of when I looked at him with with his body all tensed up and his stomach just tense he's writhing he's panting he's wailing and screaming i'm not overplaying it that was every single morning as if he'd never been fed once a day in his life an unweaned child in the presence of his mother is consumed by unmet need that child can't think about anything else that child is overcome by concern that it might not get what it needs. And of course, they're not thinking about it like that. They're not processing it that way, but that's, what, that's how they operate. That's what the psalmist is referring to here. They're not well-adjusted. They're not stable. They're not able to reason with themselves. They're not able to say, you know what? I, I may be hungry, but at least I've got my health and these, and these nice warm jammies. And it's such a clear, beautiful morning. Look at that sunrise. At least I've got that. No, they're they're a total mess until that quick fix of milk calms things down for a little bit until they're hungry again and they're a total mess again. Now, what the psalmist is trying to put in our mind is a really helpful image for what, what our souls look like, sometimes feel like. This churning, this this need, unmet need that is so vivid that we can't think about anything else. Something so vivid and powerful, a desire so strong in us that it clouds over everything else that we do or think or see. The psalmist, though, has quieted his soul, he has calmed himself like a weaned child, he's transformed. So, I mean, our son Benji, he's, he's still totally obsessed with his mother, but when he's with her now, he's calm. Now the problem, as all of you who serve in infant child care know, is that when he's not with her, he's the total mess. You know, the same stress ball that he used to be with her when he was hungry. Now he's with her, he, he's, he's weaned now, he's, he's perfectly calm as long as he's on her hip. He's not wondering anymore whether she's gonna feed him. He's just content to be with her. He knows she's got it, and he's got her wrapped around his finger. So, so do you see this? this connection between his humility and his calm. When the psalmist occupied himself with things too marvelous for him, in other words, when when his vision of the good life for him was everything to him, then his relationship with God was rocky. Maybe it was transactional. I'll give you what you want, you give me what I want, let's make a trade here. And he was stressed out. His heart belonged not to God, but to his own vision for his life. See the difference. His heart didn't belong to God. His heart belonged to what he wanted. God was either a means to him getting that thing, or he was a threat standing in the way of it. Either way, God was wanted or opposed as a means to an end. Not for his own self. His own unmet, self-defined needs, his hopes, his dreams, owned his heart. And when that's the case, what you get is turmoil, not peace, because you can't be sure that you'll be able to get God on your side for your agenda. You can't be sure that God will see things the way that you do. And in his presence, that can turn you into an an unweaned, demanding, fussy, child rather than a child that's calm trusting everything to the presence of his parent i speak as an often unweaned child in the presence of his parent who begs and stresses and churns not just in my mind but right here in my gut right there and that is no way to live friends it is no way to live. And the beautiful message of this psalm is that none of us have to. We actually don't have to live that way. So, so you read this profile of peace from the first two verses of Psalm 131 and what you might be thinking is, isn't that nice for David? <laughs> how nice for you that you're not proud. Kind of seems like a humble brag, but how nice for you that you're not proud. Okay, unweaned, unweaned child to weaned child. Great, glad you made that jump. Isn't that nice for you? I, I admit to feeling that way at least a little bit the first couple of times that I read it. You can think maybe, tempted to think, I don't see how him being perfect helps me. All I've got is more shame. But if you felt that way, uh, what I want you to see is, that, is how verse three gives us the key to the whole song. The whole point comes in verse three. And to see everything, like I said at the beginning, to see everything that he said so far, not as trying to shame you into peace. But as trying to tell you, look what supernatural peace I've found in my life. Do you want it to? It can be yours. Because I don't have anything you don't have. I have not gained this peace through figuring out anything that you can't figure out. I got it from where he points us in verse three. The whole Psalm is a commercial for why verse three matters so much. Oh Israel, he says, hope in the Lord. Don't you want a heart that's not lifted up? Eyes that don't always look down on other people. Don't you wanna just shut down that part of yourself that always thinks and analyzes whether God is giving you what you deserve? Don't you wanna shut that down and be just calm in the presence of your father? If you want that, you can have it. But what you have to do, Israel, there's one and only one way, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever, hope in the Lord. Verse three is the point of the psalm. And because of verse three, your experience can be David's. I want to just spend the rest of the minutes we have, which aren't many, but I just want to spend the rest of them unpacking, pressing in, applying the point of verse three so that we can, by God's grace, know what it is to be calm in the presence of our father like this psalmist has learned. I think this message of peace through humility that's empowered and enabled by hope. I think that message is something you need when you're helping somebody whose soul is stirred up. And it's something you need when your own soul is stirred up. And I want to talk to both of those partly because in our church, one of the things we're constantly talking about is that everyone is responsible for the care of everyone else. We don't have a professional ministry here that does all the work of ministry in the life of our church. The the elders are responsible for equipping you guys for your ministry to each other. So one of the things we try to bring up in passages like this that, that have such practical powerful teaching that you need is is that you need this not just for your own hearts but you need it for your ministry to your friends who are sitting next to you who also need it so I want to help you see why you how you need this message when your friends need it and it's your job to help encourage them to see this truth and then we'll talk about how we can appreciate it and drive it into ourselves so you need this message when you're helping someone whose soul is stirred up who's anxious who 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 is fearful of their future or whether or not God is for them. When you're giving care, here's the thing. Here's the thing you need to know. Your instinct when you're dealing with someone who is struggling, whose soul is in turmoil, your instinct might be to build them up with good things about themselves. So if they're concerned about their self-worth or if they, they had a big setback in their work or their training, some sort of failure, they're feeling like they're not doing well and the responsibilities God has put in their life if that's where they are if you love them you're gonna be tempted to tell them all the good things that you love about them of course there's a place for that but you're gonna be tempted to go there first you're gonna be tempted to tell them you're wrong about yourself you're awesome are you serious you don't think that you've got what it takes you do you've got this that's what you're gonna be tempted to say to them and it'll be coming from a good place in your heart or if they're anxious about relationships with others, you might feel like you're helping them if you sort of take their position, stand with them, see others from their position and tell them, yeah, of course. You confirm the wrongs that they see in other people or, or confirm the, the, the situation as it appears to them and encourage them, yeah, you're right, you should hold that ground. You, you, that, that can feel like empathy. It can feel like care for the person who's, who's, who's experiencing a turmoil through relationships. When in reality it can be just taking on that higher place for looking down on others, that Psalm one thirty one says. Really though, so so this is where your instincts may take you in your care for each other, but really what this Psalm is telling us is that those instincts are only going to make things worse. That actually, if you just try to, to 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 soothe the the turmoil that comes from a lack of self worth by pumping up their self-worth, then you're, then you're gonna help lift up their heart too high and maybe just make things worse tomorrow for them. Or if you, if you try to help them with turmoil in their relationships by taking their side in whatever the turmoil, whatever's going on, uh, to, to cause that turmoil, you may think that, that you're helping them and entering in them and entering in with them, making them feel heard and understood and loved. But in reality, you may just be in, enabling them to look down on other people, where, where really, what they need most is a heart that's not lifted up, eyes that don't look down. Minds that aren't occupied by things too great, what they need is a positive message about God outside of themselves, always there, always true, always for them to bring perspective to the, to the skewed version of themselves they're living with right now. So be careful of advice that would chalk up what one author has called the inner noise inside of us to, to the, the low self-esteem that we might wanna address in these ways as if the path to peace were just stronger respect for oneself or clearer communication of your needs to other people. That is the polar opposite of the path that this psalm lays out. We need to remember to focus each other on the hope that comes from outside. A hope that isn't about me ultimately, but about one who knows me better than I know my own heart. One whose power is not limited like mine is. One who has offered me a track record of righteousness that isn't dependent on my ability to succeed, but is given to me as a gift because of Jesus. We need to be pulled out and focused up. And that's one of the main ways we serve one another in our ministry to each other in our church. So you need the message of Psalm 131 to hope in the Lord when you're helping people who are struggling with what every one of us struggles with. At one, in one way or another, at one time or another. You also need this message for yourself, of course, because there's no one who doesn't struggle in one way or another, at one time or another, with the kind of inner noise that this Psalm pinpoints, all of us do. We are not a community of people who are well-helping people who are sick, but a community of people, all of us, on the way, needing what we're giving to each other every single day. And I wanna close here this morning with just a couple of encouragements from Psalm 131 for you to remember when, when you need peace. When you're experiencing a soul that is churned up, noisy, what you need is repentance and faith. The same thing that every Christian needs every day the two basic steps we take over and over and over and over through every day of, every, uh, of, of all of our lives on this earth waiting for Christ's return. We never stop needing repentance and faith. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. One author pointed out the fact that, that actually this inner noise we experience, this churning in our gut is a fantastic opportunity to identify something in ourselves that we haven't given to God yet. It's a symptom of a problem in us that doesn't have to be there. That God has the power to remove, to heal. A burden that he has the power to carry on his own so that we don't have to. Hoping in the Lord from this time forth and forever is often gonna mean, in other words, renouncing all other hopes. That's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, you know, I was hoping here, myself, my friends, my church, my job, wherever. I was hoping there. And that's what, that's what got me this, this soul churned up like a stormy sea. I renounce that hope. Thank God for those gifts. They are not enough to give me peace. I renounce those hopes. And now I place my hope in the Lord. So if, if we're not at peace, I think what we do is we first try to see why not. What is vulnerable? What am I trusting that can't bear, bear the weight that I'm putting on it? What hope do I need to renounce so that I can put my hope in the Lord? You're gonna need your friends for that. Describe the situation to somebody that you trust. Ask them what they see. If you're not at peace, though, it could be a sign that you need to reject an unhealthy and unholy view of yourself or of other people or of God. When you're needing care, you need this message to help you repent. And then you need this message to help you believe. You need the message of Psalm 131 to feed your faith. And that's what the psalmist is modeling here through his commercial. He says, I have quieted my soul. I have calmed my soul. And he's not, he doesn't mean that he's done it by, by sheer force of will or because he tapped into something others haven't. He's saying, what he's saying, if, if you pull in the other message, message of other psalms and the fact that he points us here in verse three to hope in the Lord, what he's saying is that I've calmed and quieted my soul by reminding myself of the reasons for my hope. I have told myself true things about who I am because God is for me. I am hoping not in somebody I don't know or have no track record with. He is a known commodity to me. He is the Lord. He's using this name that was personal, that was given as a gift directly to Israel, that was fleshed out through Israel's own experience in their need being redeemed by God's power. He's not using this generic word for God, a sort of, a, a sort of plug and play that you can, you, you can uh, insert w- whatever you, you choose to, to, to look to. No, it's a very specific name based on a very specific history. He's reminding himself of who he's dealing with He's dealing with the one whose name he knows, whose name was revealed to him, whose goodness he's seen over and over again. He is not treating him like he doesn't know him. So what does it mean for you to hope in the Lord, this specific, this this known commodity that comes through all the pages of the scriptures? What would it mean for you to hope in him? Why should you hope in him? For what? Well, our psalm is short and sweet. It doesn't actually tell you what to hope in him for or why, it just says to do it for now and forever. But I don't think the organization of these psalms is an accident. It comes right after Psalm 130, one of my favorite all-time psalms. And the last verses of Psalm 130 quote this, or use this exact line. O Israel, hope in the Lord, verse seven. And then he gives you, Several reasons to hope in the Lord. I want to pass them on to you. What do you hope for from God that leads to calm and humility? Well, with the Lord, there is steadfast love. Psalm 130 tells us it's a loaded term in the Old Testament, it defines God's relationship to his people. Love is not like ours. It's not conditional. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, it's not real picky. It's not on again, off again. It is rock solid and certain. It always seeks the good of the beloved. Even those who forget his goodness over and over, his love is relentless in pursuing them. That's the, the Lord that they know. He's not a mystery to them. They have seen him in action and his love keeps coming back for them when they dig a pit that they fall into to lift them out from it. With this Lord, there is plentiful redemption, Psalm 136. Not just steadfast love, he's reminding himself of redemption. That's another loaded term. It comes straight out of Israel's experience in Egypt. There is no pit so deep that God's grace can't reach down into it. Remember Egypt, he's saying, basically. When he says hope in the Lord, he's saying, remember plentiful redemption. When we had nowhere else to look, who pulled us out of the most powerful empire in our world? Who parted that Red Sea so that we could walk through on dry land? Who gave us water out of a rock and fed us from the heavens? Who gave us a land that we couldn't have ever gotten for ourselves? Redemption. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord because there is no pit so deep, no darkness so grim, no master so powerful that God's love-driven power can't overcome it. So hope in the Lord and be still. And then Psalm 130 points us to forgiveness. A new and deeper, more specific way to talk about his redemption. Hope in the Lord, Israel. This is a God who forgives you. He will redeem Israel from, from all his iniquities. Not just Wipe a few of them away to make him feel better about himself and boost him into better, more solid, strong resolve. Not a new lease on life. He'll redeem Israel from all of his iniquities, every one of them. That's not pretending sin isn't a real problem. He's not telling you not to worry about it. He doesn't have to cheapen or obscure the truth to get Israel some sort of self-acceptance. No, he will redeem Israel from all of it. Every single one of them accounted for, assessed, noted, and forgiven. So you gotta remind your soul in Christ that God has forgiven you. That's who you're dealing with. Just don't forget it. Hope in the Lord and be still. What, what the psalmist is is telling us, when he tells us to hope in the Lord, is to remember who we're dealing with. To relate to him as he is, not some idea that we might have of him, but a real person, a true person, with a will, with an agency, with a history. He's calling us, in other words, to calm and quiet our souls through relationship with a person that we can know. It's another reason the weaned child analogy works so well. That weaned child is not still from curling up in front of a mirror, as one author put it. That weaned child is still from curling up on his mother. It isn't that that child doesn't have needs anymore, still needs to eat, still helpless in a world full of threats, still needs guidance. There's danger all around, but that child is at peace through relationship. And this Psalm is not telling you, friends, that you won't have plenty of reasons for stress in your life. It is not telling you that. It is telling you that those who hope in the Lord can know true peace anyway. They have the freedom to give up on what's too marvelous for them, to just get out of the game of micromanagement of their lives and their futures to accept their limitations where others without such a father have no choice but to push them they let it go and rest in his bosom Uh, it's been a little over a year now about a year and a half ago our family uh, took a trip to England we were on a sabbatical that our church graciously gave us uh, to do some work over there and to just reset and refresh and um, we took a few days and went to London at the end of the trip. And it was a fantastic experience for a lot of reasons. But that city bowled me over by the size of it. I was not prepared for how big it felt. Um, I know it's not as big as other cities in the world that I've been to, but something about it just felt massive. And there are people everywhere, just wall to wall, shoulder to shoulder. Everywhere we went, doing the touristy things that you do, uh, there were people everywhere. All around us, we were packed in like sardines. And we were going. I mean, we only had a couple of days, so we were hitting it hard and fast. We were going from museum to museum to museum, from double-decker bus to the underground, back to the double-decker bus, to the little black cabs with the flip-up seats, to the Paddington Station, where they got to see where the Paddington Bear was. And we were going going hard the whole time. And the whole time, one of the things that struck me, one of the things I came away with was that my two boys, time we just said the two, They were not safe in that city on their own. They had no idea where they were. They had no clue where their next meal would come from, much less how to get home. There were cars zooming all around them. I've already said there were hordes of people wedged in around them, faces that people who didn't know them or care about them or have their interests in mind. Their surroundings were anything but peaceful. They were not safe. They weren't aimed at their good. But they were peaceful. They were full of joy and life because their hands were in my hands. They were oriented to me. Their stillness came from our relationship. They knew who they were dealing with. I was the circumstance that mattered most to them because they didn't occupy themselves with things too great and marvelous for them. They weren't trying to manage that itinerary. They weighed in with their own ideas here and there, but they were mostly along for the ride. And because of that, they were calm. High energy, of course, but calm. They were oriented in the world, a world full of danger, by their relationship with their parents. And that's what this psalm invites you to do to turn off that inner noise by reminding yourself who you're dealing with, to hope in the Lord and be still. Father, that is easier said than done. And so we pray to you, give us what we need to rest because that is work that is beyond us. Thank you for this word and its precious reminder and its powerful imagery to stick it into our minds and hearts and I pray now that you would do its work in us. Give us hope in you from this time forth and forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.